You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. A content warning for today's program, we are going to be discussing medical anomalies in some detail, and many of them involve children. This being October, or Spooktober as some say, the gloves are coming off. Every Easter Monday morning, in the village of Biddenden in Kent, tea, cheese, and loaves of bread are handed out to widows and old folks from the window of the old workhouse, along with Biddenden cakes. These simple flour-and-water biscuits are like bland gingerbread men, only they're girls, and in the shape of two girls stuck together, the Biddenden maids. My name's Moxie. And this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Brainiacs. I am coming to you live to tape today from the floor of the She Podcast Live Convention, where I've gone to learn more podcasting tips and tricks, thanks to all the twos and fews contributed by our patrons at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. If you remember from last week's episodes on twins, identical twins come from a fertilized egg that splits. If the zygote splits most of the way but not all, it results in conjoined twins. Or if the zygote splits and then collides and fuses back together, science really isn't sure. Thus, conjoined twins are always identical, meaning the same gender. Why am I pointing out something so obvious? Because I met two moms of twins here at the conference who regularly have to tell people that they're identical twins, when they mention them, not when the twins are there, are in fact the same gender. This is why we need sex ed in the schools. You'll also notice that I'm not using the term Siamese twins today. That term referred to Chang and Ang Bunker, who were born in Siam, modern-day Thailand, in 1811, connected by a band of tissue at the chest. The term Siamese twins isn't offensive per se, but it just doesn't apply to anyone who wasn't born in Siam, so most people have stopped using it. Conjoined twins occur about once in every 200,000 live births, according to the University of Minnesota. About 70% of conjoined twins are female, though I couldn't find any speculation as to why. 40 to 60% of these births are stillborn, with 35% surviving only one day. The overall survival rate is considered to be less than one in four. Often, one twin will have birth defects that are not conducive to life and could endanger the stronger twin. Conjoined twins are physically connected to one another at some point on their bodies and are referred to by that place of joining. Brace yourself now while I wallow in my medical Latin. The most common conjoinments are thoracopagus, which usually involves the heart, liver, and intestine, Omphalopagus, liver, biliary tree, and intestine. Pygopagus, the spine, rectum, and genitouterine tract, 
ischiopagus, involving the pelvis, liver, intestines, and genitourinary tract, and craniopagus, involving the head and brain. 75% are joined at the chest or upper abdomen, 23% at the hips, legs, or genitals, and only 2% of these rare twins are joined at the head. If the twins have separate organs, chances for separation surgery are markedly better than if they share organs. As a rule, conjoined twins that share a heart cannot be separated. Worldwide, only about 250 successful separation surgeries have taken place, meaning at least one of the twins survives long-term, according to the American Pediatric Surgical Association. The surgical separation success rate has improved over the years, and about 75% of surgical separations result in at least one twin surviving. The process begins long before the procedure with tests and scans, as well as tissue expanders, balloons inserted under the skin and slowly filled with saline or air to stretch the skin so there will be enough skin to cover the area where the other twin's body used to be. It requires a whole hospital full of specialties to separate conjoined twins, from general surgeons, plastic and reconstructive surgeons, neurosurgeons, neonatologists, cardiologists, advanced practice nurses, and maternal fetal medicine specialists, among others. In fact, the longest surgery of all time was a conjoined twin separation. Separation surgeries often last an entire day. This one lasted 103 hours. If they started it at 8 a.m. on Monday, the team would have finished the surgery at 3 p.m. on Thursday. In 2001, a team of 20 doctors at Singapore General Hospital worked in shifts to separate Ganja and Jumanu Sreshta, 11-month-old twins conjoined at the head. Not only did the girls share a cranial cavity, their brains were partially fused. Each tiny brain had hundreds of bitty blood vessels, each of which had to be traced and identified as belonging to one girl or the other. Their brains were not only connected, but wrapped around each other. Plus, each twin's skull needed to be reshaped and added to, using a blend of bone material and Gore-Tex fibers. Thankfully, both babies survived the surgery. But sadly, Ganja would die at age 7 of meningitis though Jamanu has gone on to live a healthy life and attend school. In January of 1950, a mother in Moscow labored for two days and two nights before being taken to the hospital. Doctors performed a C-section and delivered a pair of girls. They had 20 fingers, but only 10 toes. Masha and Dasha Krivashilopova shared a set of legs and a pelvis, their torsos branching off from it at 90-degree angles. The doctors saw in the twins a unique opportunity. When their mother recovered from anesthesia, they told her that the babies had been unable to breathe and died. Masha and Dasha were taken to the Academy of Medical Sciences Pediatric Institute to begin years of experimentation, helmed by Soviet physiologist Pyotr Anokin. The girls shared a blood system, but had separate nervous systems, so they were seen as ideal subjects for research. Much like twin-obsessed Joseph Mengele during World War II, the Soviet scientists used the girls to compare and contrast. Kept in a cot behind glass next to a laboratory, scientists used the twins to determine the effects of extreme temperature change, sleep deprivation, and hunger. They were burned to see if the other twin felt the pain, dunked in ice water to see how it affected the core temperature of the other twin's torso, forced to stay awake, starved, 
and electrocuted to test their conditional reflexes. Despite their shared blood, one could get sick while the other would be fine. At age six, Dasha and Masha were transferred to the Central Scientific Research Institution of Traumatology and Orthopedics, where they would be kept for eight years before being moved to a boarding school for children with motor impairment in southern Russia. Each twin controlled one leg, making walking difficult, even with sturdy crutches to support their torsos. They didn't understand what conjoined meant. No one ever explained their condition to them. They thought that they had been born completely separate and then fused together. The twins were institutionalized, unknown to anyone but the staff, for much of their lives. But the horrific story has now been revealed in full thanks to the work of journalist Juliet Butler. Butler befriended Masha and Dasha and found some fascinating things about them that the doctors didn't study. The girls seemed largely unaware of what they had gone through, possibly from having repressed it. They didn't remember doctors burning them, but Dasha remembered a nurse bringing her a toy. Despite sharing the same genes, a pair of legs, and a horrific childhood, the sisters had wildly different personalities. Dasha was gentle and kind, while Masha was mean, controlling, and emotionally abusive to her sister. In my mind, to keep them straight, I think of them as mean Masha and dear Dasha. Masha drank to excess, which meant Dasha also got drunk whether she wanted to or not. Dasha met a boy and fell in love, and the boy seemed to love her back, but Masha wouldn't allow it. Masha forced Dasha to dress and cut her hair in a masculine style, because that's what Masha wanted. I've no doubt at all that Masha was a psychopath. She ticked all the boxes, Butler said in an interview. Dasha was in an emotionally abusive relationship, similar to the situation some people find themselves in with a partner. But while those people have a chance to leave, Dasha physically couldn't. Dasha wanted a normal life, as normal a life as they could have. She got a job putting the squeeze bulbs on pipettes. But while she worked, Dasha would smoke cigarettes and read magazines. The twins' mother found out that her babies hadn't died after all and began to visit them. But after a few years, Masha broke off that relationship too. With medical advances, many doctors offered over the years to separate the girls, but they were declined. Bye, Masha. Masha denied Dasha everything she ever longed for. A chance of love, a relationship with her mother, a job, and even what she wanted most, a separate body. In 1988, the twins appeared on a TV talk show to make a public appeal to be allowed to leave their captivity. Their pleas were successful, and they were moved to the Home for Veterans of Labor, where living conditions were greatly improved, and they were able to buy themselves such luxuries as a television, an Atari, a cassette player, and a computer, thanks to charitable donations. As the years progressed and surgical procedures continued to improve, Doctors continued to offer Masha and Dasha separation surgery. Masha always declined on behalf of both of them. In April of 2003, at the age of 53, Masha died of a heart attack. Doctors offered Dasha separation, but this time she refused of her own volition. 17 hours later, due to blood poisoning from the decomposition toxins being circulated into her body from Masha's, Dasha passed away. Masha and Dasha were both fairly developed, almost fully formed, but what would happen if one twin was not? Such is the parasitic twin. 
This can occur when one of the fetuses is partially absorbed by the other in early pregnancy. The partially absorbed fetus stops developing and becomes parasitic. The other twin, the autocyte, or thing that supports the parasite, continues to develop normally. Many cases of people and animals with extra limbs are examples of parasitic twins. One of the most interesting recent cases is that of Lakshmi Tatma of Araria, India. Lakshmi was born with four arms and four legs, a set of each growing from a torso attached to her torso. Her namesake, the goddess of wealth Lakshmi, had four arms, and baby Lakshmi was born during a festival for the goddess Lakshmi in 2005. Word of the many-limbed girls spread across India by the time Lakshmi was two. People would pilgrimage to worship her, but attention is a double-edged sword. People kept coming and coming. A man from a circus asked to buy her. Lakshmi's parents, poor laborers, had to move the family into hiding. The parasitic twin was taking a toll on Lakshmi's health. The girls were fused at the pelvis, the bones forming a circle. Lakshmi was too little to move two bodies and didn't walk because of clubbed feet. So the parasitic twin was prone to pressure sores, which would get infected and sicken Lakshmi. I can't bring myself to refer to the incomplete twin as a parasite, even though the term is used in the surgical reports. Maybe it's because Lakshmi was just so cute. And there's no way Lakshmi's parents could afford even a fraction of separation surgery, which was estimated to cost over $600,000. Thankfully, the full amount was raised by the charitable arm of the Sparsh Hospital in Bangalore, where teams of doctors worked in shifts for 27 hours. Lakshmi and the parasitic twin each had one functional kidney, so the parasitic twin's kidney was transplanted into Lakshmi, as were the bladder and uterus. Lakshmi would need more surgeries later to bring her legs closer together and build her pelvic floor muscles. She also got her clubbed feet fixed. Lakshmi needed to wear a large brace to correct a scoliosis that began to develop after the separation surgery. The brace would also help to bring her legs into the correct position, but her parents wouldn't enforce her wearing it because it hurt her. And that's the last I could find of her case. If you've seen anything about little Lakshmi since... Hop on our social media, Facebook and Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts or Twitter at brainonfactspod and let me know. You could also post it in the Brainiac break room, a great place to see the fun facts that I find each week that aren't related to the show's topic at Facebook.com slash groups with an S slash Brainiac break room. Not all parasitic twins are as obvious as a torso with arms and legs. Sometimes they are fetus in fetu a parasitic twin developing or having been absorbed by the autocyte twin. It's extremely rare, occurring only once in every 500,000 births, and twice as likely to happen in a male. The question of how a parasitic twin might develop is one that currently has no answer. To say that the fetus in question are only partially developed is still overstating a thing. They're usually little more than a ball of tissues with perhaps one or two recognizable body parts. One school of thought holds that fetus in fetu is a complete misnomer. Adherents contend that the alien tissue is not a fetus at all, but a form of tumor, a teratoma specifically. A teratoma, also known as a dermoid cyst, is a sort of highly advanced tumor that can develop skin, sweat glands, hair, and even teeth. Some believe that, left long enough, a teratoma 
could become advanced enough to develop primitive organs. There have only been about 90 verified cases of fetus in fetu in the medical record. One reason fetus in fetu is so rare is that the condition is antithetical to full-term development. Usually, both twins die in utero from the strain of sharing a placenta. Then there is the case of seven-year-old Amuljan Tamatilev of Kazakhstan, who reported to his family abdominal pain and a feeling of something moving inside him. His doctors thought he had a large cyst that needed to be removed. Once they got in there, though, they discovered one of the most advanced cases of fetus in fetu ever documented. Amuljan's fetus had a head, four limbs, hands, fingernails, hair, and a recognizable, if badly misshapen, face. Fetus in fetu, when it is discovered, is usually found in children, but one man lived 36 years, carrying his fetal twin in his abdomen. Sanju Bhagat lived his whole life with a bulging stomach, constantly ridiculed by people in his village for looking nine months pregnant. Little did they know, they were almost right. Fetus in fetu is usually discovered after the parasitic twin grows so large that it begins to cause problems for the autocyte. In Bhagat's case, he was having trouble breathing because the mass was pushing against his diaphragm. In June of 99, Bhagat was rushed to Tata Memorial Hospital in Mumbai for emergency surgery. According to Dr. Ajay Mehta, basically the tumor was so big it was pressing on his diaphragm and that's why he was very breathless. Because of the sheer size of the tumor, it makes it difficult to operate. We anticipated a lot of problems. While operating on Bhagat, Mehta saw something he had never encountered. The squeamish may wish to jump 30 and think about kittens, though if you've made it this far, you're cut from strong cloth. As the doctor cut deeper into Bogget's abdomen, gallons of fluid spilled out. To my surprise and horror, I could shake hands with somebody inside, the doctor said. It was a bit shocking for me. One unnamed doctor interviewed in the ABC News story described what she saw that day. The surgeon just put his hand inside and he said there are lots of bones inside. First one limb came out, then another, then some part of genitalia, then some part of hair, some limbs, jaw, limbs, hair. There was no placenta inside Bhagat. The parasitic twin was connected directly to his blood supply. Right after the surgery, Bhagat's pain and inability to breathe disappeared, and he recovered immediately. Though sadly, people in his village still ridiculed him. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? 
Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Okay, I am back at my desk after four days and two eight-hour drives that each lasted for ten hours. I love you, Atlanta, but your traffic can go... There is a rather famous case of a parasitic twin, even more famous than the four-legged girl Myrtle Corbin. You don't know about Myrtle Corbin? Well, what about the conjoined twins who build themselves as a single person, Millie Christine? Well, don't fret, because they're the subject of the next bonus mini-episode on patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts where your monthly contribution helps to cover the very real costs of putting on the podcast, as well as helping me go to podcast conferences to learn my craft better. But no, the parasitic twin I'm referring to was actually made into a plot point on American Horror Story Freak Show. The tale of Edward Mordrake, the man with two faces. In 1895, the Boston Post published an article titled The Wonders of Modern Science, that presented readers with reports from the Royal Scientific Society documenting the existence of marvels and monsters, like something out of a fantasy story. Edward Mordrake was a handsome, intelligent English nobleman with a talent for music and a peerage to inherit. But there was a catch. With all of his blessings came a terrible curse. Opposite his handsome face was a grotesque face on the back of his head. Edward Mordrake was constantly plagued by his devil twin, which kept him up all night, whispering such things as they only speak of in hell. He begged his doctors to remove the face, but they didn't dare try. He then asked them to simply bash the evil face in, anything to silence it. It was never heard by anyone else, but it whispered to Edward all night, a dark passenger that could never be satisfied. At age 23, after living in seclusion for years, Edward Mordrake took his own life, leaving behind a note ordering that the evil face be destroyed after his death, lest it continues its dreadful whispering in my grave. This macabre story is... just that, a story. A regular old work of fiction. But I've seen a photograph of him, you might say. Sadly, no. You've seen a photo of a wax model of the legendary head, Madame Tussauds style. Don't feel bad that you were convinced. The description of the cursed nobleman was so widely accepted that his condition appeared in an 1896 medical encyclopedia co-authored by two respected physicians. Since they recounted the original newspaper story in full without any additional details, it gave an air of authority to Mordrake's tale. No, there's a picture of his mummified head on a stand. I really hate to puncture your dreams, but that's papier-mâché. It looks great, but the artist who made it has gone on record stating that it was created entirely for entertainment purposes. 
If you were to look at the newspaper account of Mordrake, it would fall apart immediately. One of the weirdest as well as most melancholy stories of human deformity is that of Edward Mordrake, said to have been heir to one of the noblest peerages in England. He never claimed the title, however, and committed suicide in his twenty-third year. He lived in complete seclusion, refusing the visits even of members of his own family. He was a young man of fine attainments, a profound scholar and musician of rare ability. His figure was remarkable for its grace, and his face, that is to say, his natural face, was that of Antinous. But upon the back of his head was another face, that of a beautiful girl, lovely as a dream, hideous as a devil. What did I say at the top of the show? Conjoined twins are identical, meaning, among other things, the same gender. But more than one face on a single head can happen, though it is exceedingly rare, with fewer than 50 cases documented since the 1860s. The condition is called craniofacial duplication, or diprosopus, Greek for two-faced. The degree of the condition can vary from a split nose with wide-set eyes to a complete second face. Continuing in the theme, the cause of this deformity isn't fully understood, though many researchers believe it is another rare form of conjoined twinning. Fetuses with diprosopus often lack a fully formed brain, or if the brain is formed, it will have duplicate structures. So most infants with diprosopus are stillborn. Most, but not all. There are cases like Hope and Faith Howie of Australia, who lived for 19 days, and Lolly Singh of India, who lived for two months. The people of Lolly's village believed that she was the return of the Hindu goddess of valor, Durga, a fiery deity traditionally depicted with three eyes and three arms. Except for her ears, of which she had two, and her cheeks, of which she had three, all of Lolly's facial features were doubled. Hundreds of people traveled to her village east of New Delhi to touch Lolly's feet and leave offerings. A temple has been built in her honor from the donations. Then there's Trey Johnson of Missouri. He could be described as having two partial faces, as if his body were just beginning to split from the top down, but had only gotten as far as his mouth. Doctors didn't hold much hope for newborn Trey, whose cleft palate extended all the way to his sinus, which was open to the outside, but his parents were determined to fight for him. It took a dozen incorrect diagnoses before the doctors realized he had diprosopus. At every stage of his development, Trey's parents were told that he wouldn't live much longer. But Trey kept right on living, even after multiple surgeries on his skull and with epilepsy that caused him to have dozens, even hundreds of seizures a day. Those were made manageable with medical marijuana, and Trey is now 15 years old. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But I need to finish telling you about the Biddenden Maids. Mary and Eliza Chulkhurst were born to an affluent family in the year 1100, joined at the hips and shoulders. They were naturally good friends, but also prone to quarrels that could break out in fisticuffs. At age 34, Mary took ill and died suddenly. Doctors proposed to try to separate Eliza from her sister's corpse, but she refused, saying, As we came together, we will also go together. 
and passed later that day. In their joint will, the Biddenden maids left 20 acres of land to the church, the rent from which was to provide for the poor of their village. Remember that the script for the show and all of the research sources can always be found at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.